All right, let's talk about John Keats. Uh, I would like to begin with the uh, letter that he wrote to his two brothers in uh, December of 1817. And at the very end of that letter is a very famous passage where uh, Keats introduces uh, an important concept in literary criticism. He says, several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean, negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Coleridge, for instance, would let go by a fine isolated verisimilitude caught from the penetralium of mystery from being incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge. This, pursued through volumes, would perhaps take us no farther than this, that with a great poet the sense of beauty overcomes every other consideration, or rather obliterates all consideration. So, this idea of negative capability, of being capable uh, of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. That is a key idea that a lot of uh, uh, subsequent literary critics and poets have picked up on. And notice the idea it's a negative capability. It's not an ability to do something. It's an ability to not do something. It's an ability not to be comfortable with a mystery or a doubt, an uncertainty, where you don't have to make it all make sense and make it all logical and rational and come up with the answer to the question. Uh, that's very much what Keats values. And he points out Shakespeare is the master of this, uh, where he would hold kind of antithetical viewpoints kind of suspended together without making a judgment about which one was true or false. Um, and, you know, you could demonstrate that in a lot of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and he, he singles out Coleridge as an example of this. Think about, you know, the way we've talked about Rime of the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan, where uh, Coleridge is willing to have these kind of open-ended questions. Uh, the way he sets up in Rime of the Ancient Mariner these different explanations, or sometimes no explanation, of what's happening and seems completely comfortable with it. That's the kind of negative capability, where you're you're not uh, a, an either-or thinking, you're a both-and thinking. It's kind of inclusive. It allows all of the possibilities to work together. And the, the footnote in the Norton Anthology, I think, uh, helps explicate this a, a little bit as well. It says that Keats is distinguishing between two kinds of poetry. On one hand, a poetry that is evidently shaped by the writer's personal interests and beliefs, and on the other hand, a poetry of impersonality that records the writer's receptivity to the uncertainties of experience. So it's a kind of art that doesn't impose a vision on things, but kind of receives a vision and just records all of the different possibilities. And it goes, the note goes on, says, in that second kind of poetry, uh, a sense of beauty overcomes considerations of truth versus falsehood. Um, and we'll see that that, uh, that that comes in directly into Keats' odes. So I want to think about that concept of negative capability as we look at Keats. So let's turn to his odes. Now, the odes were all written 
in within a very short space of time, a matter of months. Uh, and we're not sure exactly what the order of composition was, uh, but I would like to start with the ode on indolence. Now, I'd like to say something about just the form that uh, Keats uses in these odes. He had been writing a, a lot of sonnets, and there are several of those in the in the anthology. You may choose one of those to write your paper on. Uh, and he liked the sonnet form, but it was too restrictive for him in a way. He liked aspects of it. So what he did, essentially, with, the, with his odes stanza is to kind of take elements of the of the Petrarchan sonnet form and rearrange them a little bit. So if, as I'm, you may remember, in a Petrarchan or Italian-style sonnet, the first eight lines are an octave with just two rhyme sounds, A and B. And then there's a turn, and the last six lines introduce two or three new rhyme sounds. Uh, and in the ode stanza, what uh, Keats is essentially doing is cutting off the first four lines of a Petrarchan sonnet. So you start off with a quatrain, with an A-B-A-B rhyme, and then you get six lines with uh, three new rhyme sounds. So in this case, it's a C-D-E, C-D-E. Uh, and he varies that, as, as often is the case in an in a, uh, Italian-style sestet. Those six lines, they may have different, different kinds of rhyme schemes. But he's, uh, he's kind of playing around with a, a sonnet form. And usually the first four lines kind of set an idea, and the last six lines respond to them. Now, whereas a, a sonnet, uh, the Petrarchan sonnet, is kind of top-heavy, that is, more of the poem is in that those setup, the setup, Keats makes it so that the setup is just four lines, and then the exploration of it is six lines, is longer. Um, and it's an iambic pentameter, just like a, a, a sonnet typically is. Now, as we'll see, he doesn't use this exactly in all of the odes, but this is the kind of standard ode stanza that he was using. And it's interesting to think of it as a, a variation on the sonnet. Now, in this first one, an, an indolence, of course, just means it's a very fancy, pretty word for laziness. So here's here's Keats's ode to laziness or indolence. Um, and it begins with he sees these three figures, these three kind of allegorical, classical figures in sandals and white robes. And he says they, they pass like figures on a marble urn in that they keep, as you turn the urn around, you see them uh, again and again. They're on like a merry-go-round kind of thing. Um, and so he sets them up in the first stanza. Then the second stanza, he says, well, I didn't know who you were. Um, it, it was not worth figuring out to uh, disturb my idle days. And he says, line 15, ripe was the drowsy hour, the blissful cloud of summer indolence benumbed my eyes, my pulse grew less and less, pain had no sting, and pleasure's wreath no flower. So this kind of completely relaxed state, uh, his, his pulse is slowing down, uh, he doesn't feel any pain, uh, he, he's, he doesn't even feel any pleasure, he's just kind of a, kind of a, a wonderfully, comfortably numb um, then the, the, they come back a third time in stanza three, they passed by and then he, be, he realizes who they are. 
line 25, the first was uh, a fair maid and love her name. The second was ambition, pale of cheek. As is in the last, whom I love more, the more of blame is heaped upon her, maiden most unmeek, I knew to be my demon, poesy. So poetry. So these three allegorical figures are love, ambition, and poetry. And then in the next stanza, he rejects them. He sees, well, you know, what is love? Where and where is it? And for what that poor ambition? It springs from a man's little, uh, little heart's short fever fit. For poesy, no, she has not a joy, at least for me, so sweet as drowsy noons and evening steeped in honeyed indolence. So here he's, his indolence is making him reject these things. Love, uh, you know, what is the ambition? That's, you know, that, that, that's a, a delusion in poetry. Well, oh, poetry's fine, but it's not as good as this, this honeyed indolence, this wonderful kind of, of numb uh, rest that I'm sitting in. And by the end of the poem, in the last, in stanza six, he, he calls them, uh, so ye three ghosts, adieu. So now they're they're ghosts. They're not they're not alive. They're they're gone. Uh, ye cannot raise my head, cool bedded in the flowery grass, for I would not be dieted with praise, a pet lamb and a sentimental farce. Fade softly from my eyes, and be once more in mask-like figures on the dreamy urn. Farewell. I have vis- I yet have visions for the night, and for the day. Faint visions there is in, there is in, there is store. Vanish ye phantoms from my idle sprite into the clouds and nevermore return. So the poem very clearly is right. He is he was in the spirit of indolence, and he rejects ambition and love and poetry just to kind of wallow in his this kind of comfortable lazy numbness. Well, okay. That's all very clear, but wait, we're reading a poem, right? I mean, he, he must have had enough ambition and uh, enough love of poetry to write the poem. So the very existence of the poem is giving a counter-narrative to what the poem itself is telling us. This is a perfect example of negative capability. When we're reading this, we have to believe both that he indolence won, and that indolence didn't win. Uh, indolence won, it says so. He dismisses these three phantoms, these three ghosts, and wants to be in his, uh, you know, his cool bedded in the flowery grass. At the same time, clearly, poetry has won, right? He, he's, he's taken all the time to write this beautifully constructed poem. Um, it's an example of, of the kind, that, again, that kind of negative capability. Uh, and it sets up uh, some issues that we'll see carried on in the the later odes, uh, issues about uh, creativity uh, that, that come in again. Uh, let's go to the what is uh, what may have been again. The order of these is sometimes disputed, but the next one that I would like to look at is the ode to Psyche. Now, this one is is one of the odes that doesn't use any version of the uh, Keats stanza. Uh, ode stanza that he usually uses. It's a much looser form. It's iambic, but it's not all, you know, not the same number of beats in a line. The uh, 
uh, rhyme scheme is is kind of, of changes up as it goes. It, these are not kind of tightly constructed stanzas. This is a kind of a looser poetic form that he's working in. And in the, the first verse paragraph, a long verse paragraph of this poem, he sees, uh, he's, he has this vision, he's out in the woods, and he sees Psyche and Cupid. Uh, well, Cupid, or Adonis, is the uh, the god of love in classical mythology. And Psyche was a human woman who he was in love with, who uh, saw his face and was punished for it. But eventually, uh, their their love came, brought them together, and she was elevated to the status of godhood. She became a goddess. Uh, but as he points out, she was one of the last ones. Uh, this is uh, line 24, uh, O latest born and loveliest vision far of all Olympus' faded hierarchy. So she was the kind of like the last uh, one to become a goddess. And so therefore, she doesn't have, uh, you know, the, again, altars heaped with flowers, no virgin choir to make delicious moan. She didn't have a, a cult or temples to her. Um, and so what he's going to do is to make up for that in this poem. He says in line 44, So let me be thy choir and make moan upon the midnight hours. So he will be the, the worshiper. Um, the beginning of that last first paragraph, line 50, Yes, I will be thy priest. So he's going to and build uh, a fane in some untrodden region of my mind. Now, this is very interesting. He's not building a physical temple. He's building a mental in a region of his mind. Now, psyche means the, the, the mind or the soul. So this ode to psyche, the ode to the soul, he is worshiping the soul, within, the mind, within his own mind. Um, it's a very kind of self-reflexive. Now, this is a kind of a step forward from the ode on indolence, where he was rejecting anything. Now, it's he's having this creative moment, but it's all completely internal. It's this kind of building castles in the air uh, that he's doing. He says, line 59, A rosy sanctuary will I dress with the wreathed, wreathed trellis of a working brain, with buds and bells and stars without a name, with all the gardener fancy air could feign. So it's his brain, it's his fancy, it's his imagination who breeding flowers will never breed the same, and there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadow, shadowy thought can win, a bright torch and a casement ope at night to let warm love in. So again, all of this is in his mind. This is uh, the, this soft delight, these shadowy thoughts. Uh, all of this is to let, and, and now we're letting love in. Remember in the... Uh, Ode on indolence, love was one of the things rejected. Now, love is something that he's letting in, uh, in this temple to psyche, in this kind of poetic, uh, internal, mental worship that he has of, of the soul, of the mind, of the psyche. Uh, so you can see, uh, the, the, if, you know, if you think of the odes in this order, that uh, the ode to psyche is uh, another step. Uh, he's kind of becoming more active, but in a purely internal imaginative way. Now, if we turn to Ode to a Nightingale, we'll see a further development in this, uh, these ideas in the, in the Odes. Now, here he's gone back to his, uh, something very close to his standard Ode stanza. It's got a, a an AB, AB quatrain, and then a sestet, 
Um, but one difference in Ode to a Nightingale is that line eight in each stanza is a three-beat line. So most of them are iambic pentameter, five-beat lines, but a line eight is iambic trimeter, a three-beat line. Uh, that's just a little variation that he does here. So we begin, My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, one minute past, and Lethe Ward had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thy happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. All right, so we start off, we've got this drowsy numbness. That should remind you of the Ode on Indolence. That's kind of where he is. Um, and he compares it to, like, drinking hemlock, which is a, a drug. Now, that's famously the, the drug that they gave Socrates that killed him. It doesn't have to kill you. A small dose will just put you to sleep. Uh, as he says, some dull opiate. And Lethe wards. Lethe is the, the, the river in the underworld that makes you forget. So he's, he's forgetful. Um, he says, I'm not that I'm, I'm envious of you. I'm, I'm too happy in thine happiness. I'm too tied into that. Uh, and this is, again, an ode to the nightingale. So he's saying, I'm, I'm too absorbed in what you did. And then stanza two, he says, Oh, for a draught of vintage that has been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial, provincial song and sunburnt mirth. So he wants some, some wine. Um, some, you know, and he talks about it as, you know, from uh, Italian wine, from the, from a, uh, Provencal, uh, sunburnt mirth. Um, that's maybe that's how he will um, uh, relate to the nightingale. As oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim, and purple stained stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim. So his first reaction to how he's going to join with this nightingale, and of course, you know, one of the kind of the wonderful things about the nightingale, it, it's it's singing at night, and it's it's invisible. He can hear it out there, but he can't see it. He wants to join with it. Uh, so he says, well, I'll, I'll get I'll get drunk, and, and that will kind of put me in another state, and that will, will help. Um, he says, stanza three, fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou, among the leaves, hast never known. The weariness, the fever, and the fret here, where men sit and hear each other groan. So what he wants to forget, and they remember the, the idea of Lethe, the river of forgetfulness in the underworld, what he wants to forget is the sorrow of being a person. The, the human condition, weariness, fever, and fret, uh, where men sit and hear each other groan. You know, I, I want to get away from all of these these human limitations. It says, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies. So he wants to escape from the idea of mortality, of growing old and dying. It says, where but to think is to be full of sorrow 
and leaden-eyed despairs. So the very fact that he's thinking, now remember in these in these odes, he's, he's had previously the ode to psyche, the ode to thought, but now he's seeing the, the negative side of that, that just to think is to be full of leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. So this is all the things that he's trying to escape by in, into the, the nightingale's song. Then he shifts in stanza four, away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards. Uh, so now he's saying, no, it's not wine, it's not getting drunk. The way I can uh, I can get fly to you, I can become closer and more like the nightingale, is it by getting drunk? Bacchus is the god, is the Roman god of of wine, um, but the viewless wings of poesy. So poetry is what's going to get him there, not alcohol. He says already with already with thee, tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered round by all her starry fays, but here, there is no light, save what from heaven is with breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. So he says, you're out there in the moonlight. And here he's he's been talking about mythology. He's been talking about Bacchus uh, and, the, uh, and the warm south. And now he's talking about uh, fairyland, her starry phase, her fairies, the queen moon. This is like something out of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare's play. Uh, he says, the, but there's no light here. I can't see what what you are. And he says, stanza five, I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs. But in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild. Okay, so this is a, this is a key moment. He's it's it's a nightingale, so it's night. It's dark. He says it's so dark I can't even see the flowers that are that are at my feet. Um, they are in in this embalmed darkness. Well, embalmed that means it means perfumed, but to embalm something is also a part of a funeral ritual, right? That's what happens to you. So this is uh, idea of, brings back that idea of death that he was trying to escape from in an embalmed darkness. But within that, with the power of my imagination, with the viewless wings of posy, I can imagine, I can guess each sweet. I can imagine the grass, the thicket. And then he goes on and gives a very vivid description of it all. White hawthorn in the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk-rose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer's eve, on summer eves. So now he is creating the world through his imagination, through the viewless wings of poesy. He can't see any of this. He's making it up. He's imagining it. He's creating it in his mind. Again, like the, the temple to the psyche that he did in the uh, Ode to Psyche. Uh, next stanza, darkling, I listen, 
and for a time and for many a time i have been half in love with easeful death called him soft names in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath now this is a very different attitude towards mortality he's he, he's not afraid he's not trying to escape from death he's half in love with it and with in its easeful death you know, calling him soft names and like you know whispering you know pillow talk to death um and in in his rhymes in his mused rhymes rhymes inspired by the muses says now more than ever seems it rich to die to cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy so i you know if i could die right now i would be happy hearing that beautiful nightingale song, uh, I would cease and significantly have no pain. He talked from the beginning about, you know, he's talked about getting drunk. He's talked in the first stanza about having a, a, some kind of drug to, to ease his drowsy numbness. Uh, it says, here, you know, your, your song is doing that for me. I could just kind of slip away, uh, out, away from life. As a, and if I do that, still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Okay, well, uh, now, a requiem is a, a mass for the dead. Uh, but he said, I, I, even if I, if I died, you would go on singing. You know, you, you would be my requiem. I would just be a sod. I would just be a clod of earth. He says, thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. So now I think about why is how is how is a nightingale immortal? I mean, it's, it's just a bird. It's going to die, isn't it? Well, yes, but the song that the nightingale sings is is immortal. Uh, notice he capitalizes the bird, immortal bird, not a particular small bee bird, but the kind of idea of the bird. Um, and he says, the, the, the voice I hear, the song I hear of this nightingale, that was heard in ancient times. Ancient people heard the same nightingale song that I'm hearing now. It it, it doesn't die. It goes on and on uh, by emperor and clown. Uh, a clown here means a, not a like bozo comic guy but a peasant um so from the emperor to the lowliest peasant they all heard this perhaps that self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of ruth when sick for home she stood in tears amid the alien corn now he's got a biblical reference the book of ruth and her her song of homesickness he says that that's um that's what I'm hearing now. He says, the same that oft times hath charmed magic casements, opening onto on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. And so now we're getting a kind of a fairy tale uh, uh, image. You know, op- open the casements, open the windows, and hear the the, the the sound of the sea. Fairy lands forlorn. And he repeats that forlorn. The very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. All right, so that word forlorn brings him out of this kind of dream and back to his reality. As a Jew, 
The fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Okay, so there are limits to these viewless wings of posy, my fancy, my imagination. It can't cheat death with this kind of imagination of an immortal bird that is this perfect song that's been going on forever. That's a beautiful image, but it doesn't really help me in the real world. A Jew, a Jew, thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. So the bird is, is left. It's going, it's singing its song somewhere else. What, was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? So this is, again, typical of Keats's negative capability. He leaves things very open-ended here. Wait, what was this? Was this a vision? Was it a dream? Am I awake? Am I asleep? Uh, what do I make of this? Um, you know, this, he doesn't, he brings up a lot of questions about the nature of art, uh, about how, and notice this is purely about musical art. Um, music has no, um, no content. It's, it's pure, it's purely formal. Um, you know, a poem has has words that mean things. Music doesn't. Uh, it can give you an emotion, it can give you a feeling, but it can't give you an argument about something. Uh, it, it can't make a philosophical statement about something. Uh, and so he's gone in these odes from kind of rejecting poetry altogether to having a kind of an interior uh, uh, imagination in Ode to Psyche, and now he's trying out different kinds of poetic expression. What if my poetry can be like the, the Song of the Nightingale? Uh, it can be just this this pure music in the night, and the idea that the nightingale itself is is separate from its song, that also fits in Keats's idea of negative capability, that it's not the artist imposing himself on something, it's the artist just kind of expressing this beautiful thing. The, again, beauty obliterates all other considerations. Uh, but it's obviously it's not a completely satisfying vision. He he's woken up out of it. It, it seems like it doesn't quite work, and he, he's very disoriented at the end of the poem. Now, in the next ode, the ode on a Grecian urn, he's moved from uh, he's moved to a different kind of artistic creation. This is not music. It's it's an urn. It's it's a an artifact created by people. Uh, a nightingale song is completely natural. There's no man-made thing about it. Um, it may be an image of of human uh, art or creativity, but itself is not. Well, a Greece uh, a Grecian urn is. So let's look at what he says about this. Thou still unravished bride of quietness. Thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian, who can thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme, what leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape, of deities or mortals or both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens, Loth? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? So... He starts out, and that first line has a kind of famously ambiguous 
uh, uh, word, thou still unravished bride. Well, does still mean not moving as uh, a motionless bride or as yet, and uh, an as yet unravished bride? You know, it's, it's just a temporal thing. Well, if it's an image on the urn, it's kind of both. She's perfectly still and is, is not yet ravished uh, bride. She's still a virgin and a bride of quietness. There's no music here. This is not the the Ode to the Nightingale. Um, in this, you can express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. Okay, although this is better than poetry. And then he starts asking questions. What, what is this? Are, are those gods or mortals or, or both? Where are, is this Tempe or Arcady? Um who are these? What are they doing? What are they? So all of these these questions kind of pile up and pile up. What what pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? And the the poem can't the, the the urn can't answer. It just it just shows you what's there. It's not giving you any explanation for what's there. So he goes on in the second stanza. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. All right. Now this kind of plays off Ode on a Nightingale. Here he heard some melodies, but he just talked about the the pipes and the timbrels. So he sees musicians painted on the urn, and he says, "Well, you know, a, a melody that you hear can be beautiful, but the unheard melody is even sweeter. It's perfect, right? There's no. It doesn't. It's not. Uh, it's purely imaginative. It's not tied down to any one thing." Because therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit, ditties of no tone. So you're you're playing a music not to my sensual ear the way the nightingale did, but to my mind, to my spirit. It's fair youth. And so now he's addressing a figure that a young man he sees painted on the urn, fair youth beneath the tree. Thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can these trees be bare. So you're there, again, in the same way that the 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 nightingale achieved a kind of an immortality. You're this fair youth is singing this song under the beautiful flowering trees, and he'll always be singing that song, and the trees will always be uh, full of leaves. This bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss the winning near the goal. Yet do not grieve, she cannot fade. Though thou hast not thy bliss, forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. So you have the picture of the man is chasing the the, the woman, and it says, you, you know, you're never going to get to her, which is bad. But then on the other hand, she will never get old. She'll always be beautiful. You'll always be caught in this one perfect moment of desire. So this is the, what the, the, the art of the Grecian urn can do. Stanza three. O oh, happy bough, oh, ha- oh happy, ah, oh, happy, happy boughs, that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu, and happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new, more happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. So again, you're in this. You're this perfect love, right? 
Your, your, your love is there forever warm, forever yet to be enjoyed, um, forever young. You're, you're above all breathing human passions, right? Because you, you, uh, you don't have the burning forehead, the parching tongue, the, 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 the negative things of being uh, mortal. And then he continues, uh, he says, Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies? So he sees that they're all coming to the, the wedding, they're all coming to the, the ceremony, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed. What little town, by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? So now, in the same way he was imagining the, the flowers that were at his feet that he couldn't see in the Ode to a Nightingale, here he's imagining, okay, all of these people have come out to uh, to this place to for this wedding ceremony. Well, there must be a little town somewhere that they've emptied out. Where was it? By a river? By the sea? In the mountain? Uh, you know, all of it's emptied. It says, and little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er can e'er return. So now we get the, the kind of the he's been talking about this the way this urn kind of freezes things in a particular moment. Now we see a kind of a negative side of that. Well there's there's this ghost town out there. Uh, there must be. All the people are here and that town will forever be just desolate. Nobody there. Empty. Um and that becomes a kind of an image of the, the, the negative uh, uh, power of the art, of the visual art that he talks about in Ode on a Grecian Urn. He says, O Attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity cold pastoral. So here he's kind of summing up this idea. You're, you're teasing us out of thought as doth eternity. There's an eternity to this. They're kind of, it captures this one perfect moment. And it, the pastoral is the, the, is the genre of the, you know, the, the ancient shepherds. But this is a cold pastoral. Uh, there's it, it's just it's on a, an urn. There's no kind of real lifeblood to it. It's it's frozen. It's cold. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Now here. He's he's kind of reconciling the the ideas of beauty and truth. He, remember, he talked about that in the idea of negative capability, and it's a simple equation. Well, beauty is truth, and truth is beauty. If it's beautiful, if it's true, if it's true, it's beautiful. Um, it's almost like a, a, a tautology, right? And those last two lines, and there's there's a famous crux about these, about how you punctuate them, even. And the Norton anthology puts the quotation marks just around beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Some editors put the quotation marks around the whole thing, so it's not just that that the urn is saying, but the whole thing. And if that's the way that you read it, 
if the urn is saying all of these last two lines, then it, it's making a kind of a very grand philosophical statement. Beauty is truth, truth is beauty, and that's all that you know about on earth, that's all you know, and that's all you ever need to know. Um, but if it's the poet making that statement, he can't, maybe he's talking to the urn. He says, okay, beauty is truth, truth is beauty, that's nice. Well, that's all you, urn, know on earth, and all you need to know. But maybe we, human beings, need to know more than that. Having this kind of perfect, static, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, uh, that's fine for a Grecian urn, but it's nothing, it doesn't work with our kind of, our warm human life. Now the next ode, the ode on melancholy, continues some of these these themes. Um, it says, no, no, go not to Lethe. Remember, he, he talked about the Lethe, the river of forgetfulness in, in Ode to a Nightingale. Go not to Lethe, neither twist wolf's bane, tight-rooted for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape, a prosopine. Make not your rosary of yew-berries, nor let the beetle, nor the death-moth be your mournful psyche, nor the downy owl a partner in your sorrow's mysteries. For shade to shade will come too drowsily and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. So what he's saying is, okay, you're melancholy, you're sad, you're depressed. Um, He's saying that you, you don't don't take that too far. Don't uh, drink the the poisonous wine. Uh, Don't drink hemlock. He's saying don't commit suicide, but also don't wallow in melancholy without anything else. It says that will drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. So if you go into this, you know, your sorrow, your melancholy needs something to sustain it. Then he goes in stanza two, but... When the melancholy fit shall fall sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the droop-headed flowers all and guides the green hill in an April shroud, then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose or on the rainbow of the the salt sand wave or on the wreath of globed peonies or if thy mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand and let her rave, and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. So here it's it's saying when, when you're uh, when you have this weeping cloud, when you're deep in this melancholy, uh, when you see the the droop-headed flowers, then look at these beautiful things: the morning rose, the rainbow, the sea, the uh, the flowers, the peonies, the flowers in a field. If your your mistress is angry at you. You know, take her hand and just get, gaze deeply into her beautiful eyes. So here it's taking the opposite thing. You know, the more the sadder you are, the more you should focus on things that are beautiful and pleasant. The final stanza. She dwells with beauty, beauty that must die, and joy, whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, and aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison, while the bee-mouth sips. I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine. So here is this mingling of opposites, another example of a kind of idea of his 
of negative capability. Uh, these two complete opposites are somehow completely together. So the very temple of delight, melancholy is there. So when you're melancholy, think of delightful things. When you're in the temple of delight, remember that even there, melancholy is there. You can't separate these out. They're not separate parts of the human experience. They're combined always. Uh, the, you know, the veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine, though seen of none, save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. So that's the image, that joy is like a grape, but you burst the grape and the juice comes out. Uh, that's the melancholy. Uh, and they're both, they're both the same thing. They're part of the same experience. Uh, his soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. So the idea here is, again, that delight, joy, and melancholy are intimately interrelated. You can't have the one without the other. Um, and this is another uh, kind of step forward in the thinking of the odes. Um, before he had been either sad or happy. Now he's saying, you know, you have to be sad and happy together. You can't separate out indolence and ambition. You can't separate out, separate out uh, drowsy numbness and the, the, the uh, joy and uh, poet, poetic creativity. They're all part of the same experience. There's a kind of a yin-yang about all of these things together. All right, the final, uh, th and every, everyone agrees this is certainly the last of the odes that he wrote, is To Autumn. Uh, this is a little different from the others in that it's not a 10-line stanza, it's an 11-line stanza. So he adds an extra line to that, uh, seven lines instead of six lines to that sec uh, seven, second segment of, the, uh, of the, the stanza form. And it begins, he's talking about autumn. You know, autumn is the season of mists and mellow fruitness, uh, that you fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. All of this kind of this idea of life, filling the world with ripeness, swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells, um, and as the late flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. So this is an image of autumn as fertility, uh, richness, ripeness, all of that. In stanza two, we get another image of, of autumn. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes, whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on the granary floor, thy soft, uh, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind. So here, the the allegorical figure of autumn is there, sitting on the granary floor where the, the, they they've brought the grain in for the harvest, or on a half-reaped furrow, sound asleep, drowsed with a fume of poppies while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twinned flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a clyde press, with patient look, thou watch the oozings hour by hour. So this is the idea of autumn as reaping, bringing in the harvest, uh, a gleaner, um, you know, spares the, the swath, you know, with thy hook or, you know, with thy, thy, thy scythe, uh, you're, you're mowing things down, the winnowing wind, 
um, the, the winnow is you know getting separating the chaff from the grain. Uh, this is all of the the, the work of of autumn harvest, of bringing things in from the harvest. And finally, we get the third stanza. Where are the songs of spring? Aye, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music, too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then, in a wailful choir, the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies. So he says, well, well, where is, what about spring? So, well, no, forget about spring. Autumn has its, its pleasures, its music too. And now we notice we're at the end of things. Stubble plains. This is not in the process of the harvest. This is the harvest already done. There's just a stubble left on the plains. And that soft dying day and rosy hue, it's a, it's a sunset. We've come to the end. And the, the, the gnats are, are mourn mourning. They have a mournful song. Um, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly-born hedge crickets sing. And now, with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. So now we have a kind of an autumn as a, a saying goodbye, the, the, the swallows that are going to migrate, that are going to leave, that are going to go away. So this poem, and I think uh, in, in way, some ways more subtly than any of the others, blends together these opposites. You have the idea of autumn as something rich and fertile and life-giving, and autumn is also something that is about dying and death and an end, and winter is, winter is coming. Um, it, it combines those, those ideas about autumn all together. And again, with his typical negative capability, uh, Keats doesn't try to choose which one of those is the real autumn. They're both the real autumn. Uh, you have to be able to accept the, the, the di those different viewpoints, those mysteries, and fuse them together. Um, all right, well, we will leave Keats for now. For next time, I would like you to read the first 13 chapters of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, now, this is a, a, uh, a novel you'll see is very much driven by dialogue. Uh, and so you have to kind of picture in your, uh, keep the speakers straight in your head. It's almost, in some parts of it, almost like a play. It's so dialogue heavy. Uh, but think about how the characters are revealed for their dialogue. What do we learn about these people? And you'll see that there are uh, the main characters you should focus on. Uh, there are two sisters, uh, Jane and Elizabeth Bennet. And there are two men who have moved into the, one who has moved in the neighborhood, Mr. Bingley, and his friend Darcy. And so think about how all of those characters are presented, what they're like, which characters we like, and which ones we don't, and why we like or don't like them. Uh, Jane Austen's original title for this novel was First Impressions. So think about particularly at the beginning of the book, how these characters make an impression on us and on the people in the novel. What do we think of them, and why do we think of them that way? Um, and we'll see as the novel goes on, some of those impressions will be spot on. Some of them will turn out to be very, very wrong. Um, all right, well, I will. Uh, we will talk much more about uh, Jane Austen 
first 13 chapters next time. Thank you for your attention. I will talk to you soon.